Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. In a few minutes, Richmond-based journalist Peter Golaska reviews former Governor McAuliffe's new book about the Unite the Right rally. We also get a dispatch from Nathan Moore and our friend James Perla. They're at Sound Education, an educational audio conference, and they're here to share what they've learned. But first, I sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow to discuss some long-awaited zoning changes in the South Downtown area. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and editor Elliot Robinson. So the city is taking a new approach to zoning policy. We talk a lot about zoning in Charlottesville. What is zoning and why is it such a hot topic here? So these are the laws of the land. They basically tell you what you can and cannot build someplace. It's a hot topic right now because people are paying attention to what goes up around them. Things are changing a lot. One zoning thing people might be familiar with from the city council elections is single-family versus multi-family zoning. Mm -hmm. How does a zoning policy like that work? Basically, the main zoning that places have all over the country is this zoning that focuses on what you can put inside a building. So it's like you can put single-family residential on this property. Then there are little pieces that allow multifamily, so that's where you can get apartments. And there tends not to be anything in the middle. Certain advocates talk about this missing middle that would provide a different kind of smaller size. And then there's also commercial or mixed use, which is residential and commercial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And mixed use is, is something that's been around for a long time, but only in zoning somewhat more recently. And that is something you kind of see in more urban areas, like in the core of the downtown mall, there's apartments over a lot of the shops there, Mm -hmm. or in places like Richmond or Baltimore, New York. When did this whole process of overhauling the city's zoning get started? So this thing that I wrote about this week is form-based code, which is a kind of zoning that's different than what we just talked about. And that got started with this strategic investment area this was a plan that got adopted by the city council in 2014, and it focused on this region south of the downtown mall in Charlottesville that's sort of Ridge Street to Avon Street. And the strategic investment area plan became part of the comprehensive plan, so it guides what the city wants things to look like, what developments should go there. But the comprehensive plan is just a guide. It really only kicks in with certain staff decisions about where to put money. So what do they want in the strategic investment area? Some of the things are smaller blocks. There are really big sections for Charlottesville. It's supposed to be a place that you can walk around in more that feels more like a neighborhood and less like different sections that have very different appearances and purposes. What's currently in the strategic investment area? There are, I think, four different subsidized housing sites. So Crescent Halls is one that's owned by the city. South First Street, there's Friendship Court, which is owned by a nonprofit. 
So a lot of the public housing and subsidized housing that exists is in this area. So there's a draft of this zoning plan going to the Planning Commission on October 15th. What's in it? I think the big takeaway is height differences between the current zoning and what the form-based code is about. The height that is currently allowed through most of the area that this code covers is nine stories if you do something mixed use. But the amount of housing you can put in is capped pretty low. So it ends up being luxury office buildings, like one that's going up right next to the railroad tracks that's called 323. It's right across from Friendship Court, and that's going to be nine stories tall. So the form-based code restricts that nine-story section to sort of basically right at the X Park, the center of that, and it would be right around a big garden plaza kind of thing. So talking a little bit more about form-based code and how it's different from other kinds of zoning and development practices. Two weeks ago, we talked about the resident-driven process of redeveloping the public housing along South, South First, First Street. Street. Yeah. right? And then even before that, we talked a little bit about the resident-driven process of redeveloping Southwood Mobile Home Park. Mm-hmm. In what ways is form-based code a different approach to development? The, the basic dichotomy of traditional zoning versus form-based code is traditional zoning tells you what to put in the building, form-based code tells you the outside. But I found that local zoning in the area is kind of a mixture in some ways. Like Mm. Albemarle's Southwood, actually, the zoning designation they chose is based on form-based code. And, I mean, at the hearing a couple weeks ago, how it was going to look from the outside, from the road, was a Mm -hmm. huge point of contention. Right, right. One of these other ways that's different from traditional zoning is the idea is you get all of your feedback from residents up front about what they want their neighborhood to look like. And then there are certain best practices as well. And because all of that's up front, then you can just ask developers to check off. This is exactly what we want. Just do that. And then developers can just figure out the money and and build it. And often with form-based code, there's a little bit more flexibility of what you can put inside a building. It really streamlines the process, so you don't have to have multiple steps of a development going to different boards and commissions in the city to get approved because of the constraints that a normal zoning pattern would have. What other advantages do people see of this kind of zoning of form-based code? cutting out this special use permit process, it means for developers and the city and housing advocates in some ways, you are cutting out the process that has basically meant no new housing in cities across the U.S. for like 20 years. On the other hand, these are very organized neighborhoods. This process cuts them out of deciding on developments. Talking a little bit more about housing and how it's related to form-based code, how could that change the way that the city approaches housing development? Low-income housing advocates have been opposed to this form-based code for a long time, really worrying about cutting out their input on the process. They've been worried that this means displacement and gentrification. So I asked one of the consultants involved in the form-based code has written the housing needs assessment that the city and the county and surrounding counties are using. And so she was saying, first of all, all of this subsidized housing is protected. They have resident bills of rights. They're really committed. They have resident representatives. So the other thing to worry about would be naturally occurring affordable housing 
So Anita Morrison, who's this consultant, said that there's little naturally occurring affordable housing in this area or across the city. So that's not as much of a concern, she was saying. The main driver of displacing those people is a lack of housing because rents can just keep going up because there's nowhere else to move to. She was saying that form-based code addresses that because it allows more housing. It takes out that, that low cap on housing I was talking about. She was also saying that, that it, it's possible that when this area becomes more walkable and all these things, higher income people will move in and that maybe will drive up rents. But she was saying that the thing to do with that is to protect residents in other ways. You know, the city can increase their supplemental rental assistance vouchers, seed African-American businesses in the area, that sort of thing. She was still saying that probably in total with the, the total amount of housing that would be built out, the affordable housing would go up a bit, and then um, the amount of higher income residents would also go up more than that. So probably in total, that population mix would change. How do skeptics respond to arguments like that? The low-income advocates, you know, especially the Charlottesville Low-Income Housing Coalition, they're saying, wait on this, don't approve this until you have a housing policy in place for the whole city, rezoning for the whole city, because they're talking about how the single-family zoning in, like, Greenbrier and these places means that only people of a certain income can afford to live there. Those are historically white, tend to still be very white. Can we look at how we're changing those neighborhoods at the same time? How is the history of the land where the strategic investment area is that we're talking about different from the history of neighborhoods like Greenbrier? I think that is part of the driver of the skepticism that there was an intact neighborhood along Garrett Street for years. And then in the neighborhood renewal, a lot of the buildings were torn down and then Friendship Court was constructed, and in that process there were people who were renting houses that had to move and landowners who were forced to sell. And this plan seems almost like more the same to some people, that they were told that things are going to be improved, and the last time someone said that, they were displaced wholesale. What kinds of investment is the city looking for in the strategic investment area? I think the the city has already been making investments, and some of the investments called for specifically are redeveloping public housing, and that's happening. The city has really invested in that, investing in Friendship Court's redevelopment, things like investing in the Daughters of Zion Cemetery Preservation, giving money to all these groups. I think they also want to create job opportunities What relationship does form-based code have to those goals for investment? It basically makes it easier for developers, and that could be private or those could be nonprofits like Piedmont Housing Alliance. It makes it easier for those groups to invest in this area. I'm trying to think of something to ask about how people should visualize what that area could look like. How would Ix look different? How would Friendship Court look different? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who would live in these new buildings? What kind of businesses would go in them? Right now, there's kind of an inconsistent approach to height and where buildings sit on a property. You know, there's... Because they always apply for a special use permit, right? Yeah, or or they go by right just with whatever zoning is already the rules are. And because of the special use permits, 
depending on what year it is, the boards could change over. There could be one board that would be more permissible for certain items to go through that process and others it mm-hmm. aren't. So it really does lead to you might have a really tall building next to one that's shorter because of the different set of people who approve the permits. Right. And different groups of neighbors can be active at different times. Mm-hmm. So do people think form-based code will bring more consistency? Yes. So the idea is you get more, and a little bit like the downtown mall for a lot of the sections, where the height would be more like three to six stories. Um, would these buildings go up like in the X parking lot? I mean, where where yes. would they go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the X park is like th- this huge property huge, owned yeah. by you know a couple of people. So that's definitely a place that could get redeveloped. And the empty lot there that's right next to Friendship Court, that will become part of the rest of Friendship Court during the redevelopment process, right? The the garden area? Yes. Right. They're effectively going to build on that empty lot so they don't displace anyone. And then once that comes on, they would knock down the building. And then once they get to the end, there will still be an open plot that would be for their vegetable garden other uses, but it just will be in a different part of the property. Mm-hmm. One critique that I hear of Ix Art Park all the time is that we built this kind of community center and all of these businesses right next to a lot of affordable housing that are totally unaffordable to everyone who lives in that neighborhood. Do residents have similar concerns about the strategic investment area? And Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a lot of where the low-income housing advocates' opposition comes from. Who are you preparing all this for? All right, let's end this segment like we do every week. What's on your calendar this week? Well, in less than a week on October 16th, we will be sponsoring a school board candidate forum for Charlottesville and Arbor County. We'll be working with VPM. That candidate forum will be at starting at 6.30 p.m. at City Space on the downtown mall. I wanted to highlight again that October 15th, that's a Tuesday, is when the City Planning Commission is talking about forum-based code. Thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. you. Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, here on Soundboard each week, we take a look at Virginia state politics and news, and we check in with our friend and journalist Peter Galaska. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion, and he's based over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So I want to start things off today with a couple of books that came out about August 11th and 12th, two years ago, in Charlottesville. And you have done a a review of those two books, one by Hall Spencer, one by uh, former Governor Terry McAuliffe. Take me through... Well, actually, both books uh, just came out. I think um, the Governor's book came out in August or July, and Spencer's book just came out a few weeks ago. And they're about the Unite the Right rally in August of 2017. And um, there have been many books and articles written about what happened and why, but I thought these were sort of interesting. They're different in many ways. And, um, you know, uh, 
Governor McAuliffe's book has been gotten a number of reviews so far, some of them not so positive. And um, Haas Spencer, Haas Spencer, of course, is a familiar face in Charlottesville. He was a co-founder of the now defunct Hook and also Seville. Um, and, um, and he's a long time. He writes for the New York Times and for the for National Public Radio and other people. But in any event, um, you know, there's been a whole lot of forensic looks at what happened. And apparently the consensus both authors seems to have it that the city really did screw up badly. Um, the uh, security was very bad and uncoordinated. Um, and uh, it just goes on from there um, that, you know, things were too confused. No one knew what was going on. And, of course, that resulted in, uh, you know, Heather Heyer dying, a protester being rammed by a car, and then two police, state police officers died when their helicopter crashed. And but each book is is its own problems in its own in their own ways. Um, what are some of the the problems of each of the books? Well, I thought McAuliffe's book was surprisingly well. You know, it's a good read. I mean, it's something you really zip right through. It's just that McAuliffe is is always sticking himself and praising himself for something such as expanding um, you know rights to uh, convicted felons and things like that that may or may not have anything to do with probably don't have anything to do with the United Right Rally. If you could only extract uh, McAuliffe from maybe, you know, a quarter of the book, it would be a really good book. The problem with Spencer's book that I have, even though he he's a good reporter, he's got some really colorful, um, you know, portraits he's drawn of the mayor there uh, and, and a number of other people um, who are important in the whole, you know, city political situation about, you know, should you get rid of Lee, you should do this, how do you do it, et cetera, et cetera. The only trouble I had with Hollis Spencer books is it's just, it's just disjointed. I, maybe it's a new style of writing, but it seems like a long social media that just doesn't really seem to come to an end. And uh, as I note in my book, there's uh, probably the, still the best that I've seen just basic factual account is that by Hunt and Williams Law Firm of Richmond, which the, the city hired to, to back in the late 2017 era to, uh, to do it. The Heafy Report. You know, to, to look through, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Heafy Report. That was uh, still very much to the point. Um, and uh, so if you, but I think all, all three reads, if you're so inclined, would give you a really pretty good understanding of what happened. Yeah. Well, Peter, I want to move on to another uh, story going on right now. We've got elections here in Virginia in just a few weeks, and there's a whole bunch of folks running for state house delegates, state senate, and a lot of money in those elections this year. Um, you wrote a little bit this week about uh, a lot more of the money coming in uh, for Democrats via the PAC Emily's List. Take me through what this story's about. Yeah, Emily's List has come up with. Um they've taken real notice um about what's going on in the uh, General Assembly and um because there's something like 39 seats that are, you know, are, you know, running they're by being by for by females. And um and it's a really pretty good chance it seems all polls seem to indicate that um Democrats may take control of both the House of Delegates and the Senate. And so what Emily's list has done, it's come up with I think a total of 2.1 million dollars to distribute uh through its various packs. Um to Democratic women running running for office out in the state elections, and um, that's significant because I mean you know you never got those kinds of boosts of money this late in the game, 
And um, so, you know, and there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, of course, Emily's List tends to, to back abortion rights people. And a lot of women I know in Virginia are angry that the largely Republicans in the General Assembly, while not banning abortion because they can't legally, but they've certainly put a lot of obstacles in the path of a, of a, of a woman who wants to, to check into getting one. Yeah, the thing that that's kind of new in Virginia, it seems, is big money. Uh, well, a the the scale of the money in general for these elections, um, but also the the big money on the Democratic side. Uh, what uh, what's is this a response to big money on the Republican side? What's going on here? Well, for years and years, of course, there was well, there's always been big money on both sides. I mean, you know, I mean, back depending, but in the more recent years, I think. Uh, especially going, say, from the George Bush era, W. Bush era, to the Tea Party era and on into Obama, and the you know the Tea Party people, there was a lot of money coming in, a lot of it from you know outside sources like the Koch brothers and uh, American Legislative Exchange Council and, and other kinds of groups that are you know kind of not too not too hidden packs for right wing money. Now, a lot of the, the Democrats are coming out, and it could be it could be centrist Democrats, it could be more leftists, it could be anything, but they're really ramping up the numbers. And a lot of GOP said, oh, well, you're not supposed to do that. No, no, but, but if it's equal, it's equal. So I just find it's interesting that there is so much money, and a lot of it, of course, right now is a reaction against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So you're, you are seeing a big change um, that's happening you know, as we, as we, it's happening quickly. It's what's, that's what impresses me. Mm-hmm. Well, something to follow. Uh, I want to uh, shift gears over to uh, the governor, Ralph Northam. Um, you know, early this year, back in January, February, when there was that blackface scandal, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. calling for him to resign and all the rest. And yet somehow he seems, he, he held in there and seems to have mostly recovered as the popularity goes. Yeah. Uh, what's the story? Okay, there are two stories actually. These are both analysis op-ed type stories. One is by Roger Chesley, by um, who's with the used to be with the Pilot and the Daily Press down in the Tidewater area, and now he's with the Virginia Mercury. And then there's another one, an op-ed in the Richmond paper by uh, Professor Steve Farnsworth, Farnsworth, who's a familiar political scientist at Mary Washington, and one of his associates, Jeremy Engel. And they're both talking about some new polling numbers that show that despite, you know. Don't forget, like it was last February or last winter when this stuff came out that Governor Ralph Northam had appeared in blackface at a medical school yearbook joke picture. He denied it. Then he said, well, I don't know. He first said yes, and then he denied it. it got very, he didn't handle it very well. And at that time, just about every prominent Democrat in the state wanted his head. And they were all worried that this is going to screw up their, their chances for uh, victory come November. Well, um, it wasn't the only scandal, but we'll get into the, the other two in a minute. But what's happened was that basically uh, Northam bunk- hunkered down. He, he just, you know, took the punches. He didn't come out with anything aggressive. He did make a lot of gestures, um, given the blackface nature of the issue, to the African-American community by starting an advisory board and to have a special commission examine racial inequality and in state laws and things like that. So now, um, according to the Mary Wash poll, Northam is like it's like a 61 percent approval rating among African Americans, and overall, um, the poll found that North, uh, Northam is that as now has about a 47 percent approval rating overall in the state, which is only eight percent 
uh, or percentage points lower than what it was, say, in September of 2018. And he did lose a lot, but he's been slowly regaining it. All right, Peter. Well, uh, any future takeaways on this one? No, not yet. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, it just, of course, it doesn't really matter since Northam can't succeed himself. But it's still going to be interesting to see what happens to the rest of the Dems because the GOP thought it was sitting in the catbird seat, you know, back in the, in the winter. And now that's kind of gone away. Right. Elections still seem to be going pretty well for, well, at least the campaign is right. going pretty well for Democrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right, Peter. Thanks much. Yeah, take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. Celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our last segment, we hand it over to Nathan Moore. Well, here on Soundboard, we share news and culture for our Charlottesville community. So it may seem a little odd to get a report from Boston, but that's where I am right now. I'm at a conference called Sound Education. It's a conference for educational podcasters and audio makers. And here at Soundboard, we think that this is one that counts. (laughs) Uh, One of my colleagues at UVA is also here. James Perla is the producer of Notes on the State, and he's the managing director of the Citizen Justice Initiative at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. James, hi. Hey, Nathan. Great to be with you this afternoon. So a lot of the folks here make podcasts or they're affiliated with universities making podcasts in some way. What's the, the gambit for universities getting into the podcast space right now? So thinking about podcasting as a way to share academic research, it's a great opportunity to use the podcasting medium as an engagement strategy to kind of bring other people into the fold. I think there are a lot of opportunities to translate that to the Charlottesville context, thinking about what a community radio station like WTJU actually means is something that's I think might be really productive to look at. Got a, a good working relationship with Nomi Dave in the music department, and she has put together and, and gotten some organizational okay to do a, a, what we're calling an ethnography lab. And so Nomi and and China Schurz and uh, Jim Ego and Dave Edmonds and a few others are all kind of in the orbit of this thing, where it's about kind of like you say, you know, taking the scholarship that's out there, taking ethnographies people have done, and telling stories in other ways. And you know, what are kind of some of the best practices that that grad students and faculty can can bring to bear on this kind of thing, to tell those stories in a more public setting, because a lot of it's really valuable and speaks to current issues. This would be a good spot, too, to put in a plug for, uh, for our own podcast network uh, through WTJU, TEEJFM, T-E-E-J.FM. If you're out there listening and have always thought, man, I would love to make a podcast, we can help show you how. Just give us a call down at the radio station or shoot, shoot me an email. It's uh, nathan.moore at virginia.edu. You know, what are some of the stories you feel like need to be told in Charlottesville, James? One of our participants in the panel today has a really interesting concept in which she just talks about women's experiences in her very local community in Boston. She was able to embed herself within her community more and get a sense of of a wide range of different people's experiences. I think in Charlottesville, there are a lot of opportunities to, again, get a little bit farther out of the university community and to begin to actually expose 
or gain knowledge about what people want to talk about and kind of like build our content around that. So here, the opening event at the podcast garage, it's really, I think it takes the philosophy of a community radio station in which you can kind of set up shop and support community in telling the stories that they want to see in the world and really just open up the resource and allow the stories to come out of the community as as it happens. And so I think that's sort of the direction that I could see Charlottesville going. So this is kind of a, a big question to close on maybe, uh, but you know, universities have long had this mission to educate students and to advance new knowledge. Where does podcasting fit into that? I think in a really big way. The mission to create and disseminate knowledge being the sort of core of most universities has to adapt to new models of communication. And I think it is true that the research, the the next generation of academics will have to have some type of digital media component to their research. You know, already we see academics being the sort of intellectual basis for content for many sort of commercial podcasts, which is why I think the university is a really critical space because we have the the talent, we have the intellect, we have the resources to actually create content within the university that supports and sustains faculty research so that faculty research and expertise isn't sort of being extracted to a company that's financed by a multinational corporation or backed by advertisers that you can actually keep it within the public good, the service that a public university should be doing. James, thanks so much for taking the time today. Great. Let's get back to the conference. (laughs) James Perla is the producer of Notes on the State, a podcast produced here at UVA, and also the managing director of the Citizen Justice Initiative at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia. that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week, and if you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee, production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. <laughs>